So thanks, Nick, for reading uh, that section of scripture. Now, I've got to be honest, uh, folks, and say that we've got quite a lot to pack into this evening. So I can talk really quickly, and you may not hear or understand everything I'm saying, or I can uh, just simply take the time, but we'll do the very best that we can. We're talking about a very important subject uh, this evening. And, of course, the section of scripture that Nick has just read to us was clearly a section of scripture that was badly misunderstood by the Jews around him. Uh, they even accept in the, in the uh, words that uh, Nick had uh, read there that uh, they just didn't get it. They just didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. And uh, we began this series two weeks ago. And what we're trying to do is to look over the uh, next few weeks, uh, different angles, different views of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we spoke about the fact that you can see the front of uh, this lovely wooden pulpit, and I can see the back of it, and I can tell you that the front looks a lot nicer than the back does. Here in the back, we've got all sorts of things tucked away. This is to keep me going, a box of tissues when things get totally out of hand, and uh, there's a a bag here in case I have to make a quick escape to uh, put things in. But we look at things from a different angle, and as we come to the Scriptures, we discover that the Lord Jesus and the Scriptures themselves bring different views of the crucifixion. And the Lord uh, uh, Jesus uh, and contained all of them, in fact, that we're going to look at this evening and the one that we looked at previously two weeks ago, views of the cross, and they're all contained in John's Gospel. So that, I hope, helps us to just set the scene as to what we're looking at. So the series we began two weeks ago, and we began looking at uh, the, uh, the fact that the cross of Jesus was not a surprise. It was something that he knew absolutely was taking place, was going to take place. Uh, it was uh, not something that caught uh, our Lord Jesus unaware. The scripture tells us clearly that the cross was not some sort of plan B option because plan A had failed. Plan A for Adam had failed. It wasn't like that at all. And in fact, the scriptures make this very, very clear. And when we read, for example, in Revelation 13, verse 8, it states clearly that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus' death, in a sense, was accounted for before the foundation of the world. So it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't something that had come along and had taken uh, either our, our, our God in surprise or Jesus in surprise. It wasn't a second best option. Peter in his Pentecost message affirmed this truth when he said that Jesus was delivered or delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. So again, God's foreknowledge knew what was taking place. So on this point, we can be clear. Could God be any clearer? Sometimes we come to the scriptures and we like to make things complicated. But this is nothing to be complicated about. It's clear and we understand it. Everything has been made for us to be able to understand. Now this week, I want us to continue to look at the cross and to continue to look at it from the perspective of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this is perhaps an angle or a view that we don't often think about. And to do this, uh, we need to look at the words that Jesus used. We need to look at the examples that he presents himself. We need to look at the pictures, if you like, 
And Nick has graciously uh, read to us from one of them from John chapter 2, a picture of a building. And of course, the building that Jesus was speaking of was a building that was very precious to the Jewish nation. It was the temple. And I think in, uh, in that section of scripture, it says, look, you're not going to rebuild this in three, in three days. It's taken us 46 years to build it. And so we understand that it was a very important picture for the people, the Jewish people around. And as I said two weeks ago, the intention of these evening services is not to frighten anybody, but when we talk about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to recognize it's grotesque. That's a strong word to use. If anybody knows me, you'll know that I've got a problem with needles. And uh, going into hospital hasn't been easy for me. And the hardest part of the whole gig has been having uh, uh, the, the IV put in your hand. And I get so tense, like my wife driving me to the hospital, and I'm getting tense already sat in the car. Because I know it's, it's, the nurse says, oh, just a little pinch. I've never heard such rubbish in all my life. Just a little pinch. You know? I mean, who are these people? <laughs> and uh, not this time. This time went really well. I, th I think they've been warned. They said, oh, no, it's Aurum again. <laughs> when you've got an unusual name in, in an area like this, it's not a Dutch name. There's not a van something in front or what have you. And so Aurum has got four letters in it, and it's very memorable and, uh, and so uh, I've got to know some of them by first name terms. But I'm afraid. And I can't for one moment think to myself, what did our Lord Jesus Christ think about as he prepares himself for the cross? It's grotesque. But as I said, we're not here to frighten people. And if there's any of our younger people, I don't want to be labeled as somebody who's frightening you. But these are things that we talk about. And if you're worried about something, then talk to your mum and your dad. You can talk to me as well afterwards. And we'd gladly speak about it. But of course, that was the intention of the cross, wasn't it? It was to frighten people into behaving themselves, but inevitably it became a mechanism to exercise political power. In 73 BC, the empire had a problem. Spartacus, and we can all perhaps remember uh, hearing or reading about Spartacus. He was one of the gladiators, and he led a rebellion that took place, and uh, he managed to free thousands of slaves, and they rebelled against the empire. And of course, the Romans weren't happy about that. And a man by the name of Marcus Crassus, uh, he was a very wealthy man, reckoned that in today's money would be worth about $170 billion. So we're talking mega rich. And he raised an army and he said, we're going to sort these slaves out. And he went off and he rounded them up with his private army. And then on the Appian Way, which was the way that led back into Rome, it was the avenue that the victors would come riding in. Do you know what he did? Every hundred meters, he had a cross put up. And he crucified one of the rebels. 6,000 in total along the Appian Way recorded in the history books. You see, the cross was a terrible thing. But as we read the scriptures, this much is certain. Our Lord's vision of the cross 
was far different from the disciples. And I'm going to suggest, even for many of us today, and if we were to walk outside of the doors of this church, perhaps when the sun's shining, and talk to people, we would discover that they too had a very different understanding of the cross. In fact, many people today would still say, the cross was the sign that Jesus failed. And I've told you the account of uh, the young woman who I remember, uh, the church that I grew up in. Uh, she wasn't from a Christian family at all, and she was uh, going to be baptized. It was a great big church. A thousand people sat there. And she stood up and she said, all my life, she was 17, all my life I've been told that the cross showed that Jesus failed. But it shows to us that he had victory. The disciples saw only defeat in the cross. They only saw failure because they had wanted the Messiah to come in, kick the Romans out, and bring them the victory and to be with them forever. But to our Lord Jesus Christ, the cross meant glory. To the disciples, it meant weakness. But Jesus turned the cross into power and victory. The Apostle Paul understood this when he wrote in Galatians 6, verse 14, he said, but God, for a lovely verse incidentally, but God forbid that I should boast except in what? In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. A verse that we should underline in our Bibles and record for ourselves. And so this evening we look briefly at four more pictures we looked at uh, the previous one last uh, uh, two weeks ago is the sacrificial lamb. And today we look very, very briefly at four more pictures of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was the first to announce this when he said this. He said, behold, the Lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sins of the world. So the so John the Baptist is, and uh, the, the way the scriptures are written, you suggest that he shouts out, look, behold, and we rejoice in that. And so we see here that John the Baptist in chapter 1 of John's gospel, verse 29, and again he repeats it in verse 36, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In effect, John was answering the question that Isaac asked of his father in Genesis 22. You know the story, I'm sure, quite well. God has spoken to Abraham, and he says something which on the face of it seems absolutely terrible. Abraham, you're going to sacrifice your son, your only son, Isaac. But if you look at the words very carefully, Abraham is obviously sure that this isn't going to end in the death of Isaac. And so they get the donkey saddled up, they take a couple of the... Uh, the workers with them carrying the wood. They have a little pot with the fire in it. And Abraham has a knife with him. And they go off to Moriah where they're told to go. And on the way, Isaac says to his dad, we, we, we've got the wood, we've, we've got the fire, but where's the sacrifice? 
And John the Baptist tells us the answer. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the answer to the question. Now, all of these different pictures emphasize different truths, particular truths, perhaps. The sacrificial lamb simply spoke of the fact that the death of Jesus on the cross fulfilled the entire sacrificial system that the Jews had in place. And it put an end to it forever. Forever. Jesus accomplished with one offering what millions of animals on Jewish Altars could never accomplish. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, again a verse that we will know the moment we say it, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. The second picture that uh, we come across in the next chapter of John chapter 2 verse 19 is the one that Nick has read to us. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now this picture was totally misunderstood by those who heard it. We heard Nick explain that. In fact, it was used in the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ by one of the so-called witnesses to make the case that Jesus was an enemy of the Jewish law. You can read that in Matthew 26 and in Mark chapter 14. But of course, our Lord Jesus Christ was not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. But it fitted their needs for him or to give the impression that that's what he was talking about. You see, Jesus was talking about his body. And I don't know if you've ever begun to look at this and to understand these different pictures, these different examples that we have. Because it's really important that we understand what it is that's going on here. You see, God had prepared the body of his son, and this body was the temple of God. What do I mean? Well, back in John chapter 1, this time verse 14, again, well-known words, words that we've spoken of at Christmas and we tend to speak of at Christmas, and I read them again for you just in case you've forgotten. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So think about that verse for a moment. And a literal translation could go something like this. The word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. So now we're beginning to see the picture here very, very clearly for us. And we begin to understand the implications of what this means. And then we come to a verse uh, that we'll look at uh, in more detail during our studies in Colossians. Really looking forward to our studies in Colossians, by the way. Tremendous little letter. So if you're not planning on coming, change that mindset and come along starting this Thursday. Look out for your home groups. Encourage each other to take part in that. But Colossians 1 verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. The fullness of God. The body of Jesus is intended and indeed is the temple of God. And lawless and sinful men come along and they thought, we can destroy this. We can, we can deal with this. We can destroy the prince of life. But their attempts were futile. <clears throat> now for a moment we must stop and think about the sufferings of Jesus and the horrible things that sinful men did to the temple of his body. 
Uh, you may have seen some films that help us to understand these things. And as I said, you know, it's grotesque, it's gruesome. And as we do this, we have to marvel at the sinfulness of men. Have you considered that? What, what would you have shouted in the crowd? You know, there's Pilate. He says, who do you want me to release? This terrible murderer? Or this innocent, sinless Lamb of God? And the crowd shouted, crucify him. But what would we have done? What would we have shouted? You see, in the space of just a few hours, and that's all it was, the soldiers arrested Jesus, they bound him, they led him or pushed him from one place to another. They whipped him, scourged him, spat on him, humiliated him, and made him wear a painful crown of thorns on his head. And then they led him out and they crucified him. And all of this was done to a man who was absolutely innocent. He had no sin. In all of human history, there has never been such a miscarriage of justice. Because just for a moment, think about your own life. Are you innocent? Are you innocent of murder? And someone might jump up at this moment and say, absolutely, I've never murdered anybody. I suspect if we were to talk together, we'd find that as the scriptures tell us, in the heart is where murder begins. I don't know if you've been following the case, very sad case in, in many respects of Kenneth Eugene Smith in Alabama. He was executed on Friday morning this week. And his notoriety comes from the fact that he's the first man in human history to be put to death using nitrogen gas. So when I was in the hospital and uh, the nurse said, oh, we're just going to put this little oxygen mask on you, I said to her, it is oxygen, is it? It's not nitrogen. So she looked at me and said, why in the world would you ask me a question like that? So I said, well, this morning they put a man to death in Alabama using nitrogen gas. And so she said, well, I've just put a check now you've said that. So it was slightly worrying for me. And uh, she came back and assured me it was oxygen. So I was very grateful on that particular point. But it's a sad uh, situation. He was executed on Friday. Um, and he was executed because he was convicted in 1989 of murdering a lady by the name of Elizabeth Sennett. And Elizabeth Sennett was a pastor's wife. Now what happened is that the pastor had run up some big debts. Uh, my wife's looking slightly uneasy here. And uh, he was short of money. And so he decided to claim the life insurance on his wife by paying this guy $1,000 to bring her life to an end. How terrible this is. And he claimed to be the pastor of a church. As the police began to close in on the situation, he hung himself because he knew he would be found out. Now, did Kenneth Smith deserve to die? We're not here to discuss capital punishment. I mean, if I was 
in the death chamber and it was my job to turn the nitrogen gas tap on, what would I do? Wouldn't be easy. But that's not the question that we're here to discuss. It's not my... I have trouble stepping on an ant. <laughs> but the question I asked you was, did he deserve to die? And friends, the answer is yes, he did. Because out of greed, he murdered Elizabeth Sennett. But what about you? Are you guilty of murder? The things we say under our breath about other people, the thoughts that we have, the statements that we make. And I suspect that all of us are guilty of murder in our hearts. But did Jesus deserve to die? No. Because he was sinless. He was without fault. Now we'll have a, a recap in a moment, but the third picture that we have of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, again found in John's Gospel, this time in chapter 3. Jesus is talking to a man called Nicodemus, and again we will know this story very, very well indeed. Nicodemus was uh, uh, a member of the Sanhedrin. That means that he was one of, I think, of, of either 68 or 70 people, men in Jerusalem, who had the responsibility of making sure that the Jewish nation did what it was supposed to do and that it upheld the law. He was a clever chap. He would have known the Old Testament inside out. And suddenly, in a conversation that Jesus has with him, suddenly the Lord Jesus turns to him and says this. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we say, hallelujah, what a wonderful, wonderful verse that is. And Nicodemus is thinking to himself, this is abhorrent. This is terrible. This is unthinkable. You see, the Jewish understanding is that snakes are awful creatures. I have some sympathy with that, really. My mum in Africa, when probably about eight years old, was bitten by a big snake. And her arm instantly just ballooned. And she was on her own at the time. Dad was off uh, on mission work somewhere. Uh, I was only eight. I wanted to drive the Land Rover, but couldn't. And I remember going to the hospital and she had to drive with just one hand. If you know anything about a Land Rover County, I'm sure Simon here knows a lot about them. Power steering hadn't been invented then. And I don't think they, do they have power steering on them now. I'm not sure. And she struggled and she only just made it before the poison had seeped through her whole body. And Jesus compares himself to a serpent absolutely unthinkable. In fact, just to help you understand the Jewish view and mentality of snakes, you could hunt a serpent, a snake, on the Sabbath, and that would be okay, and kill it. That was the view. That's how bad they were. Also, the fact that Jesus had to be lifted up, again, this was abhorrent, on a cross, 
To be hung on a tree was the ultimate humiliation. It was the same as being put under a curse. Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23 says, For he who is hanged is accursed of God. But on the cross, and this is where our hearts rejoice, because in Galatians 3, verse 13, Jesus was made a curse for us and thereby redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, if considered by themselves, the images of the lamb, the temple, and the serpent might give us the false impression that this, uh, that in his death, Jesus was a victim instead of a victor. But this, as we've already said and discussed, is a wrong understanding. And it's easily balanced out by the fourth and the fifth image, which we close on this evening. That of the Good Shepherd, John chapter 10, verses 11 to 18. Don't have to turn to them at the moment. And then uh, John 12. But I would suggest that you look later, and I will put the notes up uh, if you want to uh, look up all these references later. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do that when I get back um, this evening. Our Lord was not murdered against his will. He voluntarily gave himself to die for us. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself, John 10, 17 to 18. Now, this may not have happened to you here in Canada. I don't know. It's happened to me in England. Because in England, we've got lots of sheep. And if you know anything about sheep, sheep are fascinating creatures. Well, they're not that fascinating, actually. They're as daft as you can imagine. And so you can be driving down a country road, and there, stood in front of you, is a sheep might have a bit of grass hanging out of its mouth and it's just chewing and looking at you. And if you stop the car and get out, it just goes, bah. Okay, it's just not the most intelligent animal. And I believe sincerely that God knew that the sheep was what we need to understand about ourselves. But I want you to just imagine that you're driving along this road and you see this sheep in front of you. And you, 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 know, you sort of feel sorry for it. Although I've got to be careful with this story because in many respects today things have changed. I remember uh, uh, somebody um, saying something similar to make the example. And one person in the congregation said, no, I wouldn't hit the sheep. Because just supposing you're driving in the car and you see the sheep, but you know that if the action you take will result in the death of another person, what would you do? Hit the sheep or kill the person? Well, in the old days, it was pretty obvious. You'd hit the sheep. But Jesus, the good shepherd, was willing to give his life for sinners who deserved to die. John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now, I was intrigued to see this on uh, Facebook recently. And it says, the Lord is not my shepherd, for I am not a sheep. Well, they didn't finish the sentence off quite, did they? Because they should say, the Lord is not my shepherd, for I am not a sheep. I'm a goat. We live in a world that will fight as hard as it can to reject the shepherd. 
to reject Jesus. But the gospel declares that Jesus is the good shepherd willingly died for the lost sheep of the world and did it with knowledge of all that was involved. Jesus did not die a martyr's death. He died a criminal's death on a shameful Roman cross. He was numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53 and Mark 15 tells us. The fifth and final picture that we look at is not one that perhaps you've even considered as being a picture of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's found in John 12, verses 20 to 28. In fact, we've got a couple of minutes. We'll, if you have your Bible, turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 12. Just eight verses. Verse 20. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. And then Jesus answers and says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. You see, our Lord's death and burial look like defeat for God and victory for the enemy. But it was just the opposite. His seeming defeat was actually the greatest victory Jesus ever won and a far greater victory than healing the sick or casting out demons. Our Lord's body was like a seed, a dead seed. When Nicodemus and Joseph placed it in the tomb, as they had taken it down from the cross, but on the third day, it was resurrected in power and glory. And today, the preaching of the gospel is the fruit that we see. Colossians 1, verses 5 to 6. So here then are the five pictures of our Lord's death on the cross, and each of them emphasizes a particular tru truth. Like the lamb on the altar, Jesus died as a substitute for us who deserve to die. The Jewish priests were careful to give as little pain as possible for the animal being sacrificed, but Jesus' body was treated like a building being destroyed. 
It was a substitutionary death, a cruel death, a vile death. For he was like a serpent lifted up and made a curse. But his was a voluntary death. The shepherd willingly dying for the sheep. The seed willingly planted in the ground and producing new life. Friends, we're saved at the cross. The blood that was shed is the blood that washes us free of our sin. We can't understand it all. And as you think about your life and as I think about my life, I, I ask myself the question, why would God ever send his son to die for me? And then the answer comes, because he loves me. And the message I have for each and every one of us this evening, it doesn't matter what you've done, what your life is like, I'm not interested in the past. But I tell you this, God loves you. And he has sent his son. And when we place our trust and our hope and our belief in him, we're able to take part in that death because we died with Christ we are buried with Christ and we're raised to life with Jesus and we're able to shout out and let's do it together. Hallelujah, what a Savior.